Hey y'all, it's Luke. This week on the pod, we are back with another film episode, but this time not merely a film episode. Well, now that I think about it, <laughs> Hillbilly Elegy, that wasn't exactly just a film episode either. Talked a lot about culture, talked a lot about the way we treat poor people, the way popular culture portrays poor people, pathologizes poor people. But this one feels different, I guess, because my guest and I have a little specific worldly knowledge about the topic at hand. There's a new documentary on Hulu. It's a film, not like a series or anything. Just a brisk hour and 40 minutes of megalomania about one of the most spectacular implosions of a company since, I don't even know, like Enron. (laughs) I think half of you probably had like Enron stocks in your retirement accounts and half of you were probably not even born yet when Enron collapsed. So you might get that reference, you might not. It's big is the point. The film's called WeWork or the making and breaking of a $47 billion unicorn. And the title is pretty descriptive. That's exactly what the movie's about. WeWork is a co-working company that scaled with almost unfathomable speed. Like zero to acclaimed $47 billion valuation in basically nine years. It was on track to be the second largest initial public offering of stock ever for a startup company right behind Uber. But the entire company was a house of cards and almost sort of a reverse pyramid scheme in a way that we'll talk about on the episode. The moment even a little outside scrutiny was put on it, which outside scrutiny is required when you're selling stocks, so the IPO itself was the thing that triggered the implosion, the whole thing imploded almost overnight, like within a week. You know, they, the company filed this IPO disclosure saying, hey, we're a $47 billion company, come buy our stock. People started reviewing the offering and were immediately like, uh, there's nothing here. And people were tweeting each other. It was, there's, there's a scene in the movie. that's pretty funny where tweets are flying back and forth. People are just like, what, what is this? Within a week, the CEO was ousted. The IPO was postponed. And eventually the company value dropped to closer to five to $10 billion. It's still a big number, but one investor specifically had given almost $10 billion. So the company was not even worth what had already been invested in it which is, to put it mildly, a catastrophe. That is all I'm going to say before we get to our guest. Well, except this. At the beginning of the interview, I play a little t-ball with our guest. I was going to keep it a secret, but there's no point here. It's Benji Wade, our first-time, two-time guest, who also joined us for the Hillbilly Elegy episode, my, my film review buddy. And I teed up the question of why we, he and I, have specific knowledge about the topic of co-working. And it's germane to this introduction, so I'm just going to repeat myself here briefly. I actually started a co-working space in 2013, and he came on as a partner almost immediately afterwards. The space still exists. It survived the pandemic, and fingers crossed, it's actually kind of thriving at the moment. Our ambitions were never to become a startup unicorn. We wanted to create a cool space and a welcoming community that people wanted to work at. He actually watched the movie first and was like, dude, we have to do an episode on this. So what follows isn't just about one specific startup. What we're hoping to do here, and I think, we, I think we succeed, I think we do a good job, is an analysis of startup culture in general by comparing and contrasting one of the most overheated startups in history versus a business in the same sector that we have intimate knowledge of that has much more modest ambitions. Not, not to say zero ambition, it's, it still takes ambition to start something. But again, comparing the business model of co-working specifically versus this hypercharged co-working startup with all the baggage, soaring rhetoric, soaring investment, and soaring valuation that comes with that. All of that is coming right up. But briefly first, if you like what we're doing at Range, if you like this wacky mix of just bone-chillingly brutal conversations with people who are working at the edges and margins of society, mixed with light little fluffy film episodes every once in a while, but always sort of trying to think about centering Spokane in an increasingly complex global and regional and even local world. The episode we're working on next is, is very close to home, but it still feels like a world away in some ways. We're going to be talking about Idaho. We want to keep doing that. So if you can't afford to chip in so that we can keep it free for everybody working on the PBS model here, please go to rangemedia.co slash subscribe. That's rangemedia.co slash subscribe to chip in. And we'll keep doing this for as long as there are awful, but also hilarious things to talk about in the world, which will probably be forever. All right, that done. We've got me and Benji Wade. 
talking about WeWork, the making and breaking of $47 billion unicorn, everything that's wrong with startup culture, but also a discussion of messianic cult-like business leadership styles. All of that and more coming up. I'm Luke Baumgarten, and this is Range. Episode 37. This little cave of WeWork was my happy spot. It's Benji Wade, everybody. Benji Wade's back. Wow. I'm here. Benji, I don't think I want the full update that you just gave me when we walked in, but how the hell are you, man? Oh, my goodness. I'm okay. I, I participate and belong to too many things, and I'm trying to do too many things in my life right now, but I'm, I'm okay. I'm holding it together. I feel the same, and I think this actually, this is germane to the conversation about WeWork, which one of the ways that they were able to grow as quickly as they could, in addition to some really, really, let's say, creative accounting, fraudulent accounting might be better suited, and a lot of just insane inflammation of the valuation leading investors to invest and invest and invest. The thing that is sort of an untold story, and one of the things this movie gets right, is a lot of people who really, really cared bled into this company in a way that they were never going to get anything back from. But it, it was fueled by the passion of people, and a, there's a lot of human misery left in its wake. I'm not saying that's what's happening here, but I think as millennials and Xers and maybe a few Gen Z listeners, I think the the idea of really putting your all into work is something that's uh, that's pretty common. Can you maybe tell people at home why our two dumbasses might be uniquely qualified to not just talk about film in general, but talk about the explosion and implosion of a co-working company? Once upon a time, I think when you and I had just become friends through Facebook and just some shared connections to people in the Spokane community, whatever, we had some side hustle projects that we were thinking about working on. And you introduced the idea of co-working spaces to me. And this is in two, mid-2013. And I wasn't even familiar with the model. I mean, it, it didn't come as any surprise. As somebody who had worked uh, remotely as a web developer and had worked out of a coffee shop for many years, I was like, this is what a really cool idea. And the way that you had come at it and your interest in it was pretty directly related to the history of co-working spaces as a place for um, businesses or nonprofits or community organizations with limited resource to find a place to, to do business and to get their work done and, and probably collaborate on some of the things that they're doing. And I was like, okay, already I'm, I'm sold. This is a really cool idea. And then the, the idea that really started to plant a seed with me was like, what if we were to start a small agency in a co-working space and use the co-working space as a place to, to, to do business or whatever. Right. right. And so Fast forward, we threw up a shingle. Um, you were the one who dove in in late 2013. And then quickly I signed on as the first kind of like participant from an ownership perspective or whatever. And the way that we approached it was always with like clear eyes, full heart, probably going to lose. <laughs> like this is not going to be something that we are going to retire at 35, which I was already past 35 at that point. So that doesn't work. But you know, we weren't thinking this is going to be some big money making thing. We were like very humble in our pursuit of co-working spaces because it, our understanding at that point, having not been over-informed with the places like WeWork, it's just, again, we came at this from pretty humble, like, let's, let's see what we can accomplish with this model. Let's get a bunch of nonprofits. Let's get, let's get artists who are also designers. Let's get small people who belong to the creative economy, but even reach for like the occasional lawyer or an accountant or whatever. And to see if everybody could like remote workers. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And so the way that I look at this is, you know, co-working spaces, like shared resource business models, generally speaking, they require like a massive amount of honesty, integrity with yourself and with your customers and with the market to be pulled off in any kind of sustainable manner. Right. And what they don't need. And what I feel like this, this documentary does such a great job of describing it, it fails in many ways, but it does an exquisite job of what, what's guaranteed to kill co-working spaces is some circus clown buffoon ranting and raving with missionary zeal. You know, like he's, you know, work until you drop Adam Newman shouts at one of their little like parties. That's like masquerading as a, a keynote speech or something, you know? So I feel like our background was that 
co-working spaces are very difficult to pull off even when you are being super honest about it with yourself and with your market. And when you're doing all this lying from the start, it's like, it's guaranteed to fail. So anyway. So our co-working space is called Fellow Coworking. It's now almost eight years old. It's actually sort of slowly and steadily gained value over time, not at the, you know, the massive scale that, that we worked in. And then before deflating, it's like, for me, it was like, I don't know if I'm going to be in a traditional office worker forever. Because I, I started Fellow when I was still working a, a nine to five. Uh, and I was like, I want a beautiful place to work with people, you know, we really into community building and stuff like that. And so it was like, it was really just, just purely that, you know, there's not much connection to startup capital in Spokane. I wouldn't have wanted to do it anyways, but it's largely the idea was like, can we just build a space where people can come? And the fundamentals of the business actually seemed good. Like this is a good business. It's a model that can work. And that's kind of borne out with COVID aside, like, and we grew really, really slowly because we were always doing something else, you know, at the time it was never, this was never our full job, but it was like, so it kind of maybe grew slower than it could have. But like now fellow is a mature business that uh, global, you know, once in a centenary pandemic society is going to be a, a totally profitable, totally serviceable business. And more importantly, the people that work there really, really love it and almost less for anything we did and more for like just giving people space and at an affordable price point to just kind of come and do their own thing, make their own friends, make their own connections, build their own community. And so that was, we'll get into this cause I'm going to do a yeah. summary of the film, but like that for me was like the culture at WeWork and it, it became even more clear to me in this film. It was kind of a sense I got and it became just absolutely clear was like the culture in the community was dictated from above from day one with this, you know, like you were saying almost a guy who wanted to come across as messianic almost, not even almost like the guy grew up on a kibbutz in Israel. We'll get into more of this in detail, but he definitely portrayed himself as like the Messiah of not just work, but of like modern life. And that's, I mean, that's not who either of us are despite our, uh, both of our proclivities for occasional histrionics and uh, whatever. So maybe we just jump into the summary a little bit. Aside from the startup stuff, which I only have tangential access to, we understand the fundamentals of running a single co-working space. And yeah. we've been some, you know, successful enough to understand how to do it well. It felt like a pretty good opportunity to sort of like dive into the world of like startup excess, venture capital, all that bullshit through a business we actually kind of understand a little bit. So that's mm -hmm. kind of why we wanted to do this. So the movie though, and I want to talk about it as its merits as a film after I give the summary real quick. So I'm just going to spend like five minutes trying to dash through this, the plot because the plot is basically a messianic figure tricks a bunch of people to giving them a bunch of money and devoting their lives. And then it all collapses. Like that's the, that's the single sentence plot summary. The film starts in 2008 after the last economic crash and sort of posits this theory that I want to come back to where it's like after the real estate bubble burst, people were looking for connection, especially millennials. People were looking for a place to belong. People's careers were being stunted. It seemed like is sort of the implication here. So they were looking for other things to throw their effort into or other ways of sort of organizing, not just themselves, but like organizing society. Millennials don't just want a job and they don't just want a career. They want a calling. And I will give Adam Newman credit here. He assumed that everybody was achieving their calling by participating in WeWork. So it sort of ties in the explosion of social media with the explosion of this very physical, you know, real estate company called WeWork. Adam Newman, like we mentioned, is a, the founder. <laughs> this is so cringy, but he calls it the world's first physical social network in like 2010. But like clearly Facebook is such a big thing at this point and Twitter's probably just started coming online too, where it's like, oh, this is like a social network, but in person. Can you imagine it? It's like, yeah, it's just like a bar or an office. <laughs> Anyways, the pitch is pretty simple. Offices are expensive. Startup companies need to grow fast. So WeWork offered flexible space and really cool amenities to both small companies, but also freelancers, remote workers, and other people who wanted to stop working in coffee shops, which is sort of the 90s modality and early 2000s modality for like remote workers or whatever coders, like, you know, just like insert your picture of like any dot-com adjacent movie from the 90s or early 2000s. Yeah, that was me from age 28 to... Right. And you 34. met, you actually met your wife coding in a coffee shop. Yep. I did. Right. In Bozeman, Montana. Woo. And it happens, you know, it takes all kinds, takes all places. That was happening all over in America. So again, like this is a good idea. And I even think what 
the film maybe gets right in sort of situating it around 2008 or just, you know, situating it with the onset of the millennial generation entering the job market is that this is not just a good idea, but it's like a necessary idea at the, like the sort of fractured juncture of, you know, late American capitalism, the way companies work, the way companies outsource, the way companies are constantly trying to cut costs around massive, you know, line items like, like office space. It also, post-COVID, might be more important than ever. We'll talk about this probably a little bit more later, but Facebook, I think, is still creating a plan to offsite half of its workforce within, you know, in the next couple of years so that if another pandemic comes up, it's not so catastrophic. So anyways, it's a good idea. The way they went about it, though, oh my God. So they wanted to scale as fast as humanly possible, adding as many locations as they could, first in New York, then across the U.S., then Europe, eventually getting into Asia and Latin America. They were founded in 2010 and had a valuation. And again, let's like talk about through the course of this, what these valuations even mean. They were worth $1.6 billion within three years. So by the time we were thinking about starting fellow, they were already worth 1.6 billion. A year later, they were worth 5 billion. A year after that, 2016, 16.9 billion. 2017, 20 billion. 2018, 45 billion. And then right when they were about to do their IPO in 2019, 47 billion dollars. So a company went from literally nothing from the the old office manager talks about how she walked into, you know, half of a floor somewhere in Midtown Manhattan, probably 20,000 square feet with sawdust on the floor. On that first day, Adam said, I want to open in three weeks and I want to be full with a wait list. (laughs) And it was a nine year, just absolute Mm -hmm. balls to the wall race after that. And it, if it, the growth seems impossible, it was absolutely impossible. And and at least the dollar value, there are hundreds and hundreds of WeWork locations, but that $47 billion valuation is completely illusory. So that's the two-minute story. What pads out the remaining hour and a half is a really jaw-dropping and at times nauseating, but not at all perfect, And which I hope you'll, you'll sort of weigh in on eventually, your, your thoughts as a filmmaker. But a look at the company culture Newman created, it includes drunken parties, debaucherous yearly campouts slash company retreats that one person early in the film calls Fire Festival Gone Right. Yeah. Hello, we world. Thanks to you, things have been going very well. And in gratitude, we decided to throw a 72-hour weekend rager. <laughs> and I almost fell out of my chair even five minutes into the documentary being like, how could Fire Festival have gone right? Turns out it actually didn't go right. But at least this one company party was just the rager to end all ragers, apparently. A growth trajectory that left people on the edge of burnout, psychological manipulation that preyed on people's desire for belonging, and then trying to work company culture into people's entire lives, which ended up with them creating these, or attacking we in the tackiest possible way to everything, including regional, basically regional managers, like Dunder Mifflin regional managers, who were had the title CWO of like the Denver market, CEO of the Pacific Northwest, I'm imagining, who were literally just seemed to be mini cult leaders reporting up to the Messiah himself. And then that also spawned other sort of satellite businesses, We Live and We Grow, which were attempts to turn, take co-working into literally living spaces and schools and in an attempt to basically monetize people's entire lives, right? And as I was like sort of riffing through this, just quickly sort of, Doing the synopsis, that's really what it came down to. This guy, this Messiah, this Jesus Christ for the 21st century wanted to monetize people's desires for community so that he got a piece of every single piece of their life. Yeah. He wanted to, he wanted to basically create a hermetic seal around these desperate, lonely people who he was going to prey on. Yes. And like with a really just a vertically integrated model of exploiting that desperation yep. to, to belong to something. Yep. And then on the investor side, accounting tricks that made the company look profitable when it was actually losing billions of dollars, an investor class so drunk on the idea of harpooning the next Facebook, mm-hmm. they seemed to skip even basic due diligence. There was such a gold rush for this, the next wave, the next Twitter, the next Facebook, the next YouTube, whatever, Google, that they threw all due diligence out the window. And it hooked, speaking of harpoons, hooked some of the biggest fish in real estate, including Jared Kushner and his family, but also some of the biggest venture capitalists in the world, Masayoshi Son, who's the the visionary, literally a guy who's talked about as like, if if Adam Newman's the messiah of co-working, this guy is supposed to be the messiah of venture capital, who has a $100 billion 
venture fund called the Vision Fund. By the time all was said and done, Adam Newman had milked this guy for 10% of the world's largest investment fund. $10 billion. That's the exact reason why the fire festival gone right is a perfect description because That's a good point. in the fire example, the poor sons of bitches who signed up to go to that thing were throwing their money away, their time away, et cetera, and showed up to a disaster. Whereas the WeWork summer camps were pulled off with aplomb, but the investors threw their money away on Adam Newman's stupidity that they didn't recognize until it was way too late. Right. So along the way, there are a lot of interviews with former employees, again, starting out with, with this missionary zeal and ending literally traumatized in a couple of cases. Like people, you know, burst into tears, get really, really angry in these interviews. Like some of these, inter- I would have liked to have been on those, some of those interview shoots because they're pretty incredible. And then lots of interviews with journalists who like almost but never quite turned their skepticism into an actual like expose. It created like this vortex of like, you know, whatever Adam started spinning Every time a new investor came in, every time a new person, it sort of demonstrates the way in which our investment economy is literally, is kind of just fueled by stoke, you know, like, and maybe it's like, maybe there's even like a GameStop tie into this as well, where it's like market, entire markets can be shifted on the stoke of one or two powerful people. I think that you're describing what is the fundamental flaw of this documentary. And it is probably how limited these journalists were in the application of like rigor when it comes to exposing somebody like an Adam Newman, Derek Thompson from uh, New York magazine seems to have come the closest, but he admits you can tell he's a bit bashful when he's talking about how I had these conversations with this guy where I'm kind of like, what exactly is your special sauce? And his answer was everything that we've heard in the last few years. There's special sauce couldn't be found in earnings or cash flow or revenue. It was a, a spirit of we. You know, I wish I pressed him harder on it, but I didn't because I had no idea what the company actually was. I didn't say in that interview, I think that this company is just, you know, a lot of smoke and mirrors. I just privately harbored this doubt. The way I wanted to end this summary was just saying, like, it did feel a lot like those, like, watching this documentary felt like those fire Festival documentaries with, like, the spectacularity of the implosion, but also kind of a lot more sad because the fire Festival people that were getting conned were just kind of rich, you know, entitled kids, and I didn't really feel that bad for them. The people that got really taken advantage of at WeWork were this, was this company full of thousands of employees who clearly poured more than just their work hours into making this company viable. And that was never reciprocated, even in the slightest, despite the sort of messianic overtones, despite the language of community and love and whatever. It was just, it was all bullshit. And that's where the Jonestown thing really comes in. Yeah, I, I would describe it, the narrative, not just of the documentary, but ultimately of just of Adam Newman and the WeWork thing of like, he is at once a Bernie Madoff meets Jim Jones. So it's, it's like <laughs> yeah. a, it's a pyramid, pyramid scheme that takes place in Jonestown. So then like at a, starting with a 10,000 foot view, and I want to get into specific topics in a second, like why is this movie worth watching, even if it's an imperfect film? And why is the WeWork story in your mind worth understanding? Circling back to our own direct relationship to the topic of co-working, it feels to me like it's not, the problem is not co-working spaces. And that would be a disaster if people watch this and have some negative (laughs) view of co-working spaces. Like when you walk into fellow co-working and you talk to any of its members, you talk to the community manager, et cetera, there's a, there's an almost tacit acceptance without us even pulling back the curtain. We are creating a service. We have a community manager, we have amenities, yeah. we have Wi-Fi, we have coffee, we have all these things. It's packaged onto, and we figure out a way to basically, as it's described so many times by Derek Thompson and others, rent desks, rent space, rent offices. Sub, basically, you're subdividing some space and you're adding some amenities and you're building a community at the same time. The community aspect of that, which is exploited so much by uh, you know a charlatan buffoon like Adam Newman, really is critical to co-working spaces. So people accept that. The idea that it would ever be intensely profitable in a city like Manhattan is what just makes you, or at a city like New York City, in the most expensive um, borough in that city, is like, it's preposterous on the face of it. So people should have been like, people like the Derek Thompsons, like to, you know, like why I feel like they, they let close. us all they down. So close. Yeah, I mean, it's like, to me, I think why people should watch this is because the WeWork story is like a great example 
of how we begin as a, as a culture to really stretch the hell out of definitions um, when it comes to like the marketing of capitalism, you yeah. know, terms like startup, entrepreneur, tech, innovate. The fact, I mean, I, I think it's a clever line. It was the first physical social network. Would I have bought it? I might have. Come on, man. We might have bought that. Maybe. Because it's actually kind of clever and it's not untrue. But it's also not something where you'd go, oh, I can see why this is evaluated at a $47 million. It's physical space. Yeah. At one point, Scott Galloway, who's a New York University business school guy who's interviewed uh, many times in this and has some of the great zingers in it. He's like, the valuation of WeWork in these Manhattan lofts was more than the actual buildings they were inside. Oh, yeah. of. I, I had that as a note. So, let's, like, so he basically sort of was at a, at a time when <laughs> WeWork was valued, they had about 200 locations and they were valued at $20 billion. He basically, I think he did some back of the napkin math and was like, okay, let's divide this by, uh, you know, divide the value by whatever square footage they say they have. So that means that they're, they're valued at like X dollars per square foot. And then he just went to one building in like Chelsea, you know, in the, in midtown Manhattan and was like, the building that it's in is valued at $34 million. The val the equivalent valuation of their slice of the sixth floor yeah. was a hundred million dollars. Yeah. yeah. So it's like. And then the other thing about what you were saying about packaging and, and messaging is like, I admit, I used WeWork a lot when we were thinking about Fellow because they built these really beautiful spaces and they were telling the right story, the same story we wanted to tell about community. Yes, right? because to be clear, it did not start this way well, with, it, with WeWork. I mean, it kind of did, but it was like we... Uh, over way over here in Spokane, I don't think we got the like the brunt of the Adam Newman juice the way we would have if we were like going to their fire festival camp out. What I mean is that they made a really good product, it became popular, and then yeah. they what and then Derek Thompson does such a great job of like driving a stake through the heart of this particular topic by saying they took all that legitimacy and tethered it into credibility with investors that didn't wasn't deserved. Nobody stopped. Like basically it's like WeWork is absorbed directly into the world of like 10x, let's find the next unicorn world without anybody ever asking like questions about the legitimacy of its profitability or anything. Well, else. not just even the legitimacy of its profitability. The thing that from the very beginning never made sense to me and a good chunk of the way the thing, this thing unravels in the documentary is Adam Newman kept insisting that WeWork was a technology company and not a real estate company. He did that, did that for a decade. And I, you and I had conversations about this. I'm like, we're, what we're doing is real estate, yeah. not tech. Yep. I mean, turns out like the only way you can get those unicorn investors to go after unicorn capital is those investors are looking for tech platforms. So I actually think probably if, if there was a forensic accountant or maybe not even a forensic accountant, just somebody looking at the books, they poured a lot of money into, they created their own internal social network for, it's funny that they, they called it a physical social network because they tried, they basically created a Facebook clone or a LinkedIn clone for just WeWork people that nobody used. Like the premise right. of tech, the premise of the platform economy is that the value is actually in the users. So it's like Facebook is valuable because it has a billion users. Instagram is valuable because it has a billion users you can advertise to. We were kept trying to pretend it was a some sort of tech platform, but it never was. It was always ever just real estate. And if it would have treated itself as real estate, if it would have sought real estate level investment, instead it actually got the Kushners, you know, like Jared Kushner and his family, to be like, hey, guys, you want to be big 10x investors like your Silicon Valley buddies? This is a world you know. It's real estate. We're, we're techifying real estate. Let's go get it, bud. We're, yeah, we're, we're techifying it in a way that we can't quite can never em, quantify. Em, embody with <laughs> Couldn't like even really say how materiality they were doing. of any kind. Yeah. I mean, basically, it was like the greatest magic trick that he pulled this whole physical, first physical social network, whatever thing. Yeah. Because... It was the activation of the space, speaking of users, that was the closest they ever got to something that you could even compare in, in some kind of abstract fashion to, to tech. It was really just the proximity to tech that made the whole mirage possible that he could pull off with these, the Jared Kushners of the world, and these investors who started to fight over how much uh, excitement and energy was being created around the WeWork spaces and how much they wanted proximity to that as these old real estate jackals. I mean, yeah. it's basically like, let's get together to share staplers while we rise and grind our way to having much more income and wealth derived from solving phantom problems with iPhone apps. That's basically what was happening at WeWork and yeah. the proximity to it of Adam Newman and these people that were uh, taking credit to, and this is like, I think why Derek Thompson's point was so, was so uh, acute was like, it's 
the stuff that's happening at WeWork that they're basically going, yeah, we made that possible by giving them a floor in a Chelsea, you know, yeah. uh, building or whatever. The film talks about how people were looking for a new way to connect in 2008. And that's, you know, part of what led the rise of Facebook, part of what led to the rise of things like coworking and just like alternative office space stuff. Uh, it also seems like in 2008, the super rich were looking for a new investment vehicle too. So that's the other part of this, that it was like, yeah, you've weathered the, this recession better than anybody. You've probably actually bought up a bunch of distressed prop. You've done all the predatory capitalism you can do. Now, what are you going to do with all that extra money? Where's your next investment going to come circa 2010? seems like it was, this was part of it, right? Yeah. And, and I think that from the perspective of exploiting all of the like loneliness and depression that came out of the, you know, the financial crisis of the late 2000s, I think is really a key factor in this whole story. I mean, I think when, when you look at that, I think one of my favorite parts of the documentary, there's actually a tremendous amount of cleverness from the documentary filmmakers and the, and the editors, et cetera, when speaking of those, those phantom problems being solved on iPhone apps at WeWork's space, like there's this, this montage of brunchcritic.com. I'm the founder of brunchcritic.com. Our company is Smileback. Co-founder of You Plan Me. Scroll Kit. Consumer. Handshake. White Flame. Spindos. Scruff. Yoink. Room Hints. The company is Room Beer hints. to Beer Buds. To buds. I was laughing both times. I, I almost, I watched, had, a, I almost I had a panic attack. You were, you were laughing. I was like, I got physically ill looking yeah. at all those just pointless because brands. Because we have all seen it. We're all aware of it. It was very much a specific time and place kind of a thing. And I think if there's anything that you could say about why this wasn't more profitable, et cetera, is that it was probably undervalued. Its success was so obvious in terms of how quickly they activated these floors that they probably weren't charging enough for their products because a lot of these companies that we just listed off had funding. They had their own kind of mirages they were sitting on as investors were chasing 10 apps that attempt to solve the same problem that doesn't need to be solved. And then these young people that are working on those apps are in places like we work and they're, they're really depressed because they are solving problems that don't need to be solved. I mean, it's all part of this big, like, kind of cesspool slash ecosystem of loneliness and sadness, you know? It's kind of like like distributed across an entire massive chunk of the economy. It's like Thomas Edison's workshop, except it's not, you're not making the light bulb, you're making, you know, like calendly, a more effective way to get calendar invites for somebody. Right. I mean, I, I, I know I can be a little over the top with my criticisms of these types of apps companies that spring up all the time. And I think they're, I don't, I think the shine's gone off a little bit of that world because of the blowback to companies like, you know, uh, Uber and, um, the rideshare apps as well as, you know, DoorDash, et cetera, especially when you look at what's happening in California to the way that those, those contractors are exploited and they're, they're broke and don't have, health benefits or whatever, but the, you know, there were clearly, there were some, you know, businesses and some people, professionals that were working in the co-working spaces like we work that are probably doing, you know, completely normal jobs that have like <laughs> value to society. You know, yeah. I'm not trying to say that every single startup that was working out of a co-working space and we works were just doing nonsensical stuff like the, these, that list of apps that I listed off. But, right. but I mean, there's also like, if you like the work you do, you don't have to be like, you know, solving the world's problems. If you like, like just being a coder and solving random problems, like more power to you, man. The thing that's like, gets so preposterous about that is at the level of like the investor class where it's like, I'm going to invest in 10 different calendar apps because I think calendar apps are the thing, but I don't know which of these teams is going to go the best way. We've just decided there's a space we want to crack, a space we want to disrupt. And speaking of disruption and Uber and previously like massive IPOs. So this WeWork would have been the second biggest IPO ever of a startup. Uber was the first. They both in different ways failed spectacularly. Uber is worth a fraction of the $75 billion it was evaluated at, at its IPO. And like you've said, these companies, like we all know that like, you know, we're having these conversations as a society about how social media has like sort of corrupted the fabric of our, you know, society, civilization, democracy, whatever. When people talk about disruption, which was like the buzzword of this entire period of our lives, the last 13 to 15 years, disruption, disruption, disrupt is all about we're disruptors in this space. We're disruptors in that space. Clearly the thing you're actually disrupting is livable wage jobs, labor markets in general. You're just finding ways to sort of squeeze as much work 
extort as little pay out of people as possible. That's exactly what Uber's done in all of those rideshare apps. Yeah, and I think we're we're teasing around a topic that I know you have no, I know you have notes on, which is which is basically when Adam Newman is interviewed, and this is included in this documentary, and he says something about how he wanted WeWork to be a capitalistic kibbutz. When we thought of WeWork, one of the thoughts that I had in my head is, we need a capitalistic kibbutz. On the one hand, let's create a sharing economy where everybody shares. On the other hand, if you choose to work harder than others, you should also be compensated more. It's like, let's get together, share staplers while we rise and grind and do all that stuff, yeah. right? It's like this, it's kind of pathetic and it's sad, you know, that everyday people looking to get ahead in their lives by like lionizing and following these messianic figures into their own financial ruin or into just despair because it yeah. creates a massive amount. And I think this documentary really teases at it, but it could have gone so much further around just loneliness and despair yeah. that, that was experienced by so many of these young people in the wake of the financial crisis in the late 2000s, early 2010s. Like if this would have been a Werner Herzog documentary or something, this would have, it would have been a very different film. This is a great movie if you want to get caught up on the, the WeWork story. It's a totally, it's a pretty good journalistic look. Absolutely. And I actually think it does delve into the emotional, the, just the individual emotional impacts in a way that none of the, the reporting I've read about this has. So that's good. It's like, it's a great primer and a great sort of look at, including this guy who lived at one of the We Lives and worked at one of the WeWorks. He's like a John Updike character. His name is August Urbish. Yeah, this guy. Uh, and then we'll get into the capitalist kibbutz thing in a second because that really ties into this, I think. He was like probably about my age, living in New York, looking for community, looking for family, I think, in a pretty important way. Was working at WeWork, but didn't appear to have much going on in his life. And so when we live, like <laughs> the apartment concept, basically imagine a co-working space, but you live there came up, the demand they made of him was amazing. They said, August, are you ready to do something that will change your life forever? Are you willing to break your lease and move in sight unseen? And he's like, yeah, I'm in, let's do it. And so he does it. And it's like, there's like an, he even makes a reference to Eyes Wide Shut, the Stanley Kubrick movie. He gets a little card that just has a date and an address. I, I pictured him like grabbing a shopping cart from Kroger and like moving all of his belongings into this We Live space. And he lived there basically for the entire time. Yeah. And he's this really amazing character that sort of encapsulates all the different ways we were just preyed on people's need for connection and community. When I started to learn a little bit more about it, um, that sadness turned to anger pretty quickly because now all of a sudden it felt like this person lied to me, lied to a bunch of people about this beautiful way of working and this beautiful way of living. I felt angry at him for doing that, but I also felt angry at me for like buying the bullshit. And when they started laying people off, the anger switched to rage. It seemed like we this, we grow, we live, we work, we, 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 we. You know, it's gotta be we, not me. It was we for everybody except for Adam. My note on that was if you are one of these young people rising and grinding for an app like Scroll Kit or Room Hints or Yoink or some of their neologism or whatever, right? And you're like, this is horseshit. I hate my life. I hate what I do every day. I work 60 hours a week. I'm in this co working space. If you suffer all the like intendant pathologies of that lifestyle, you know, like loneliness, alcoholism, depression or whatever, it's like, well, cool. Come, come live. We live. I mean, it was like, so with people who are just like you dystopian brave new world is yeah. what it felt like. And, and I, so and it's, the documentary surfaced all that stuff. So yeah, it didn't go full Warner Herzog treatment. But I, I have a, I have a, I have an idea in mind of a documentary I haven't seen, but I think does uh, explore this topic. And I'll, 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 I'll make my little recommendations of other things people should watch. But this documentary does surface that topic very well by interviewing former employees and former members 
it does a very good job. And they, and they interviewed people, a couple people that had leadership roles, but there were really no, the, none of the like <laughs> the we CEOs or CWOs or whatever. CWOs. There were none of the CWOs, but there were definitely some good members and good uh, former employees that they got. I had to pause it when they mentioned the CWOs and I just like literally almost fell out of, off the couch. At some point they changed the organizational structure to have like mini CEOs in different regions and they call them CWOs. So <laughs> I'm not kidding you. And I was like, look, I'm not referring to anybody as a CWO. The CWOs are people who just want to talk about their awesomeness. They have that very much in common with Adam. It was almost like you needed to know who was at the top so when they came past, you could bow down to them. The events themselves really were meant to kind of like engender a loyalty to WeWork. There would be like 50 to 70 people starting every Monday and you'd be sitting in your office and all of a sudden you hear chanting throughout the entire building. While we're all trying to do our work, it's deafening, the music and everybody screaming. They were willing to spend any amount of money to make themselves feel good and look good to their employees. It is the moment where I felt like, Luke, the mask comes completely off and you see what Adam Newman does actually believe in. And you, you could tell that he was really on one. Super expensive cars, hyper fit, adrenaline sports, all the motivational platitudes printed on t-shirts, like do what you love and the hyper expensive consumption crap. I mean, I was like, sound like anybody we know, you know, we've seen this before. This script is really familiar yeah. from humble beginnings to obscenely wealthy yeah. and consuming the planet as quickly as possible with their choices in life. It's like, what's, this is why you, 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 you think back to the capitalistic kibbutz line and you're like, yeah. oh, this is just so grotesque. So Adam Newman is an Israeli who immigrated to America. He grew up in a kibbutz in Israel when he was younger. And that made me, my head explode because like, it's like, kibbutz are there's well in addition to being sort of zionist so they're like not great but they are socialist projects they are communal communities where people all sort of live and work and share what they make equally and so his idea of like turning that on its head it fundamentally misunderstands the community he grew up in where he's like well if some people work harder than the other people you know they should profit off of that I'm like no that's just capitalism that's not a there's those those are actually those terms are actually mutually exclusive how perfect of a description, though, is that of not just WeWork, but so many of these modern startups, like you're mentioning, looking to broker and monetize connection between people. Capitalism has already created the alienation we're seeking to solve from both work and from each other. So it sells that illusion of community back to us, whether it's on social media or in, in like at least the brand promise of WeWork. It's like an Ouroboros capitalism eating its own tail. It, it, is, it, it is an exquisite feedback loop. It's like, here we go, boom, we provide this and then this happens and then it all comes back together and then we're back at square one and we'll start this whole cycle all over again. So along the lines of the this kibbutz thing, I was thinking about how locally our friends have a co-housing community that they're building called yeah. Haystack Heights. Right. And it is basically the antithesis of this we live thing. You know, the former being like, yeah, a bit socialist, marginally hippy skippy in its nature and, and like very much like let's all come together to like distribute uh, our availability and, you know, resources to make each other's lives a little bit better. Right. And the latter being like hipster epsilons relying on investors with their adorable FOMO because they just want proximity to young hip people. But it's back to that. I think I think that's such a perfect description of it. it. This feedback loop of like, well, all the despair that was created by the failure of capitalism. Well, the solution is more capitalism. Yeah. It always is. Right. That's always the answer, by the way. It's too long, didn't read. The solution more is capitalism. More, more capitalism. And you know, it's like, and it was it was the it was his it was also the last magic trick he pulled around treating uh, the physical spaces as tech companies. They even referred to these people that were going to these apartments as beta testers. Oh, and then God. it was described as a real estate company wrapped in a tech sheen. And like, um, just cr super cringy. So just to bring people up to speed briefly on co-housing is basically like these friends of ours who are developing this property have created, I think like 40 different units that you can buy. And so it's like you're built, you're buying a building that are a little bit ex more expensive than market. Basically it's like a big condo project where there are 
way more than usual, like communal spaces and community programming around like one day a month, every family sort of pitches in to do a big dinner. So the, the upshot of that is like you only have to cook one dinner a month if everybody's taking one dinner a month for the whole community. Mm-hmm. So that's the way in which it's like, it's still, you know, it's clearly you're, you're buying a house, you're owning property. It's not socialism in that sense, but there is a communal aspect and you know, it's supposed to be multi-generational. So it's like people who are empty nesters can like babysit for the young families in the group. Probably most importantly, the biggest difference there is like everybody owns their own property. The appreciation value of that property is going to go to the people that own the, the living spaces. Yeah. We live was a rental situation where you basically rented a cubby hole where you would literally, it's like, imagine 200 square feet. Imagine like a cyberpunk dystopia, like Blade Runner. You get Harrison Ford's apartment and, but you're renting it. So you don't actually, oh yeah, fifth element. Yeah. Fi, no, yeah. It's actually, it's the pods in fifth element is exactly what it is. Connor just pulled it up on the screen. That's exactly what I was stretching for. So that's like, that's the thing. It was like, there's, you don't own anything. Everything is transitory. It was built on like literally just vampirizing your entire life. If you were, if you were hooked into the entire ecosystem, you'd be paying $50,000 a year to send your kids to WeGrow. You'd be paying above market rent to put that, put that family into a 200 foot apart, square foot apartment. And you'd be working at WeWork. The scale question comes up a little bit. Scale. So just like, just how quickly they grew. Mm. And at the end, sort of as a coda, a lot of people that are sort of in that space, the CEO of Industrious, which is one of the other big co-working companies, said something to the effect of like, Adam Newman's gotten a really bad rap, you know, and obviously what he did was a lot of the stuff was bad, but like not just anybody can create a nine or $10 billion company. If that's really what WeWork is worth, if that's a more realistic valuation, it's hard to create a $10 billion company in 10 years. Almost like Icarus, you know, like, oh, ultimately, you know, his wings fell apart, but he was, it was only because he was trying to fly so close to the sun. That almost like convinced me for a millisecond. And I was like, but what good is that growth? Like, what is there in any inherent good in growing that quickly? Could a WeWork that started where it was and grew half as fast, but just stably, would that have been a lot better? I think it probably would have. But also, especially when the toll was so great, especially on these workers that were like the early stage workers who loved it so much, they were always promised equity. And there was like, you got stock options, but stock options are not actual stock. And the equity, if you would like, one woman's like, if you took time to like calculate it out, I was, my, my piece of the WeWork company was worth $2,000. So it's not real equity. It's not anything transformational. And a lot of people who, like the people who believed most deeply from like his former personal assistant who felt like he gave her a sense of like belonging that she needed in her life, but also made him, her dependent on him in a pretty toxic way. I have done a lot of therapy to like navigate through what happened there. Why was I so devastated when it ended? Why did it feel like, not that I lost a job, but like I lost my purpose. Some mind trick has been played on a lot of us. I think of myself as this younger girl and I want to say to her, you didn't do anything wrong. Like, you're valuable, and that company is not your worth. To that August Urbish guy who just, like, lived the WeWo life for, like, a decade and has almost nothing to show for it. I actually looked him up on Instagram, and he seems like he's got, he lives in New Jersey now, and he's got, like, a nice life. But it's like, that would feel like a lost decade to me if I were him. To the point of what would have pulling this off looked like, well... If it was like he really came close to making good on all his ill-gotten wealth, but behind that was this army of employees who were clearly sold a kind of a bait and switch where they were told about stock options, not fully educated on what that meant. It's like, it's like the classic, you have access to the best healthcare on the planet. (laughs) Right. Like, Oh, kick ass. Oh wow. Yeah. So glad I have that access. Can I, can I, (laughs) can I, can I, uh, cash that access in? No, it's not worth anything. Um, you know, and so it's like, it was a total bait and switch. Ultimately it would have meant that this one dude and his wife got extremely extraordinarily wealthy. That, that's what, that, that would have been the, that would have been the happy ending. I don't think so. I mean, so right, no. obviously there was no real happy ending here. You know, you'd have to really rework every single aspect of the story to find a happy ending. This is an absurd portrait of something that ended up 
like failing spectacularly, but this is the default mode for startup tech businesses in America. And it was probably most famously popularized in Mark Zuckerberg's line, move fast and break things about Facebook. And it's like, oops, the too long didn't read on that was like what you broke was the American democracy in most Americans' brains if you're of a certain age. So we've just got a question, I think, what good is this modality of working, this modality of business, this modality of investment? Does it have any value at all? And, it, and how long is it going to take for us? Everything in this economy is so superheated, including our atmosphere from the Bitcoin everybody's mining. What good is the superheated economy in the end? What, what intrinsic value is it giving except for just enriching the people who are already the richest people in the world? Well, even in the context of what leads to this superheated economy that you're describing and thinking about the gambit of the, the greatest line in this documentary from Derek Thompson, writer for the New York Magazine, says, if you tell a 30-something male that he's Jesus Christ, he's inclined to believe you. It's the greatest <laughs> line. Thinking about it from in the terms of how many, let's just be honest, tech bros in the wake of Steve Jobs' death and his life, both, of this extremely exacting, auteur-driven theory of companies and innovation, et cetera. How many times are people going to treat an Adam Newman or a Billy Farland from the fire story right? where they completely flop, fail, and billions have invested in their failures before realizing like that might not what that's the failure that that's the that's the where the failure of this documentary becomes really clear it doesn't it doesn't say anything about like what are we doing where we're continuing to put these single figures in that kind of position or a family even of like well if they pull it off it means it was worth it does it though so a thing we did last time that we kind of liked and i want to do again and so i asked benji to sort of give some other recommendations I think this is a this is a much more enjoyable film to watch and a more interesting film than Hillbilly Elegy. So actually, I would I would recommend if you just want a straight ahead documentary that really sort of gets at the emotional impact and toll of WeWork, watch this movie. It's pretty good. But I also asked my man over here to give some other move similar movies about capitalism, megalomania, whatever. So what did you come up with? Yeah, I mean. Using fire is like the one of the examples of that's very similar to this one, yeah. where the 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 um the nemesis, if you will, and Billy McFarland doesn't actually participate in the documentary, just like Adam Newman doesn't participate in this one. But there's a lot of footage of him. I think it's like those those people aren't held to account within the movie, so they kind of evade, you know, being asked direct questions and you're kind of dependent on the filmmakers to make the most pointed criticisms. And so, like I said, they don't go full Werner Herzog with this documentary or, you know, there are probably better examples of like, I would think of, you know, the earliest version of Michael Moore. Right. So like, I think of his two, his first two movies in particular, um, his first documentary ever was called Roger and me where great movie. He, he chases Roger Smith, the former CEO of general motors, around the country trying to get an interview with him so that he can ask him, why are you moving all the, you know, American auto manufacturers to uh, south of the border as a result of like NATO, et cetera. And, and basically thousands and thousands of people are going to lose their jobs in his, his home, his hometown of Flint, Michigan. Right. So that one was great because ultimately it's about him trying to, and very self-reflexively trying to get Roger Smith to answer, why are you doing this? He followed that with another one called The Big One, which was about corporate downsizing or outsourcing. Same, same kind of topic, but he actually went off after many, many companies like, and found his very muckraking way of, of like cornering them into having to answer these, these questions and be like, you know, approached on the, the streets of whatever city they lived in and asked these questions of like, what are you doing with your company? Why are you doing it? And he finally gets, before Phil Knight vetted Michael Moore at the time, he gets Phil Knight to agree to an interview oh. where he asks Phil Knight, Phil why aren't the you, CEO, of Nike. CEO of Nike, why aren't you making your shoes in the United States? People need jobs. And in fact, my hometown of Flint, Michigan, people lost their jobs because of General Motors. Why don't you let them make your shoes? And Phil Knight just chuckles and has this extremely gross like response to Michael Moore asking these questions. But what do you, what I like about those, those films is that they get held to account. Like he's yeah. really going after right. the people instead of, instead of just doing commentary and, 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 you know, interviewing, 
you know, former employees of General Motors or journalists or whatever. Right. Um, I think that Alex Gibney is like probably the richest vein of form as a documentary filmmaker. His <clears throat> his documentary called Enron, the smartest guys in the room, yeah. I think is very similar to the structure of the WeWork and the Fire documentary, but I think has a lot more craft when it comes to, you know, Alex Gibney's approach is far more journalistic in nature as a filmmaker. So he's he just got that documentary in particular is really, really good. The relationship I was going to draw between the Werner Herzog thing about what could have been done with this, what's surfaced in the WeWork documentary. I haven't seen this, so I, it's kind of weird to like, yeah, you should go watch this movie. Uh, but like, I know Adam Curtis, who I'm a huge fan of, um, British documentary filmmaker. His the t- Two of his documentaries that I think are the most important to me, one's called Century of Self, which is the history of the relationship to Freudian psychoanalysis and advertising and his other documentary power of nightmares is the history of neoconservatism and its relationship to terrorism um it's amazing and then he did one called all watched over by machines of loving grace which is a quote i can't remember what the quote is but it's from it's a it's a pretty well-known quote that um he just draped over this as a exploration of how actually technology is kind of failing us spectacularly and leading to this loneliness that we're talking about or whatever it's a richard brodigan poem there you go. And so I think that that documentary might be a really good visit for this, this topic. But I'm always saying that is like, I haven't seen it, but I, I have feeling from what I've read about it, that it, it really goes into that topic pretty well. Well, shoot. Any final thoughts? I think Newman goes from being like one of the more benevolent versions of what's often, often like deeply toxic and sociopathic, you know, to he becomes that the, the more successful or the more that like when Masa Son gives him a few billion dollars in a blank check to just spend money on expanding like crazy, you know, yeah. go nuts. I think it really elevated his narcissism and, and just like inflamed it. Like he has a line that was familiar to familiar, familiar to me around, I should fire all of you and just do your jobs. I, I made that note myself as around the 63 minute mark. And it reminded me of like my own experiences once upon a time working for a tech startup where I had felt really confident in the work that I was doing as a sales engineer for a tech company. And I was like, I'm doing so good at this that I think I'm ready to even like take on more responsibility. Maybe with that could come more pay. I was like really looking to like, you know, get my career going in this company. And I volunteered to maybe be the director of sales, you know, the sales manager essentially. And my boss, the CEO, who is a self-fashioned, I want to be on the cover of Wired Magazine guy, uh, very much loved Steve Jobs, et cetera, was like, no, I'm the CEO, but I'm also the the sales manager. And I was like, oh my God. And then I watched the movie Horrible Bosses a few years later. And there's this <laughs> scene where Jason Bateman's character thinks he's getting ready to be made VP of sales. And Kevin Spacey's his horrible boss. Yeah. And Kevin Spacey pulls in the whole team and Jason Bateman's sitting there winking and going like they're getting ready to announce. So I'm going to be the VP of sales. And Kevin Spacey's like, and it's going to be me. me. <laughs> And you know what? I'm only going to absorb 85% of the salary that I'm entitled to. And I'm going to knock down this wall and have a bigger office. And, <laughs> and I was like, this is what happens when, yeah. when these messianic figures are, they're told they're Jesus Christ and they believe it. That's basically what happens. This is a great place to end. Like I, I would have loved if, if Adam Newman would have at some point in his life, and maybe this will never happen. And maybe, you know, I, I wouldn't want to in any way absolve him of the personal guilt, but it's like, when you end up getting given $4 billion, how much of that is, yeah, my ego is going to get supercharged. My mess, whatever messianic tendencies I have are just going to get absolutely reinforced by that. Also, like now I have to make this work. And now, so like whatever whip I've been using on, you know, if I've been using the cat of, you know, nine tails, I'm going to dual wield like multiple whips to just get, because like, I, I, I would be curious and not in any, like I'm saying, not in any way to absolve him of anything. Just like how much of that feels like it becomes pretty close to psychosis. Late in the film, he scre- you see him in something pre-recorded scream, show them your heart, show them your truth, never give up. And then there's like a pause. I was like, oh, that would be, that's the, that's like the poster on the wall. And then he says, work until you drop. Show them your heart, show them your truth, never give up. Work until you drop. Work it, it, it is, it is, it's, he's full narcissistic monster at that point. So it's not surprising, but you're right. The setup, you're like, oh yeah, I'm into this. And then it's, wait, work until you drop. It's like, he, you know, he said the quiet part loud. The mask has completely come off, but it's like, how terrified was he of the monster he created? Yeah. Cause he did begin his, his story 
when we work wasn't so such the gross monster of being by motivating through inspiration and these like totally insane biz bro platitudes, platitudes you know, do what nonsense. you love you know yeah. god all right i think that's a good place to leave it benji wade thanks so much for being my movie buddy first time two time thanks for coming on man well uh <laughs> i didn't expect this but uh you're welcome luke and i would love to be on here again this is really fun can we get another round of applause Thanks again to my guest, Benji Wade. Thanks, as always, to Connor Bacon. Actually, two times, two things to thank him for this week. Not only was Connor our engineer and interview editor as usual, we recorded this episode perched gawkily in his home office with his incredibly nice microphones. I kind of feel like I need to upgrade myself up here in, the, uh, in my Garrett office recording space, my Airy. It was really, really nice of him to help us out. All right, that's it for us this week. Have a good week, everyone. And you know what? We've been dunking on him the whole episode, and he's kind of been in the wilderness for the past couple of years. I'm sure he has emerged a changed person. So I thought maybe let's just let Adam Newman have the last word. Yeah, this mic, this mic right here. Go ahead, man. Just just lead with your heart like you always do. Just say whatever comes to mind. Show them your heart. Show them your truth. Never give up. Work until you drop. Is this some kind of cult?